We'll begin today's Abounding Grace with these encouraging words from our pastor and teacher, Ed Taylor. Just this week alone, the Lord has encouraged me as a pastor to remind people, not how bad things might seem right now, but just to remind them, look how far you've come. You may not even see it. Like, oh man, I'm just the same old such and such and so and so. And, and yet everyone around you is like, you have come so far. You need to remember what, don't you remember the pit? Yeah, but you're not there anymore. No, there's a little mud on my feet. I know, but you're not there anymore. This is amazing grace. It's time once again for Abounding Grace. Glad to have you on board as Pastor Ed Taylor continues his series on the Holy Spirit. Lately, we've been exploring what the Bible has to say about the manifestations of the Spirit, and today it's faith at the center of our discussion. As we'll learn in a moment, there are many different types of faith that the Bible speaks of. With a lot of ground to cover, let's get right to it. If you've joined us recently on Wednesday nights, we've just finished our two of the manifestations of the Spirit here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We looked in depth at the word of wisdom and then the word of knowledge. These wonderful, glorious spiritual truths that God comes alongside in the power of his Holy Spirit, sort of like we use the phrase, the idea of spiritual power tools, the manifestations of the Spirit to come alongside in a powerful way your spiritual giftings. To review, pick up with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols wherever you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Now there are diversities of gifts but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. We've seen four categories of spiritual things. Because in verse 1 where it says, now concerning spiritual gifts, you'll notice that the word gifts is in italics. It's been added by the translators to try to help us understand the context of the original language, but the word gifts is not in the Greek language. It's not there. It's not in the manuscripts. So to read verse 1, it's better to say, now concerning spirituals, or things of the spirit, or concerning spiritual things. And there are four of them. The first one's in verse 4. Diversities of gifts. This is your spiritual gifting. Romans chapter 12. And we've mentioned time and time again, if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, listen to the Bible studies in Romans chapter 12. There are seven spiritual gifts mentioned there. The word charisma is mentioned in Romans chapter 12, verse 4. And these are the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. That's verse 4. 
Verse 5, there are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. This refers to the places where gifts are used, mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4. The gift of pastor, teacher, the gift of evangelist, prophet, those are all mentioned in Ephesians 4. These are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. Different topics, different places where gifts are used. And then verse 6, there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. Now Paul describes the uniqueness of how the ministries operate within the body. The word literally means energies. There are differences of energies. The way the ministry of the Holy Spirit works differently in all of us, and yet in the unity of the Spirit, then there's the manifestations of the Spirit where the Holy Spirit comes alongside of you in your spiritual gifting. The word of wisdom, incredible. How God will supernaturally give you wisdom in a situation. Not something that you've learned, not something that you have obtained, but instant wisdom on the how to deal with what's before you. Then we looked at the word of knowledge, how God will supernaturally give you knowledge about something or someone that you couldn't possibly know any other way. You couldn't learn it on Google. You couldn't learn it in the library. Somebody couldn't have told you that. And if you weren't here for those studies, very, very important to catch up on them so you can see how the Spirit of God operates in His church because too many of us, and I dare say there are those here, have chosen to serve the Lord in their own strength. They see these manifestations, they read the book of Acts and go, I could do that. And the answer is, no, you can't. You can't duplicate things for the sake of saying, well, I see it in the Bible, I'm going to make it happen. Yet the Spirit of God can come upon you in a powerful way where even as you're waiting on him, he drops into your heart knowledge and wisdom. And now we learn this third one in verse 8. It says, to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. The manifestation of faith. For you note takers, I want you to jot down different types of faith that are mentioned in the scripture. Before we look at the manifestation of faith, it's important to pull back just a little bit and see the different types of faith. So you can jot them down as we go through them together. Number one, the Bible teaches that there is an intellectual faith. An intellectual faith, James chapter 2, verse 19. James says, you believe there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. This is the kind of faith that's intelligible in your mind. It's your intelligence. You, You understand there's a God. Most people would say, even the atheists are denying a God that they don't believe in. Makes it hard for an atheist to claim anything about God. To be atheistic means I deny in a God that I don't believe in. But you, uh, how can you be an atheist if you don't believe there's a God to deny? Intellectual faith. I believe there's a God. The demons even believe. They, have, they possess an intellectual faith. If you surveyed our country today, 99.9% of the people would say, yes, I believe there's a God. That's intellectual faith. That doesn't mean someone's saved or not. It just means in their mind they understand that the possibility of a God exists. Number two, there is what Jesus termed rocky faith. Matthew chapter 13, verse 5. A rocky faith. You're going to see the progression of these different faiths as we go through them. Some fell on stony or rocky places. This was the seed that was being sown. 
where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. This is a parable that Jesus is giving. It's known as the parable of the sower, and he sees a sower sowing seed. Some of that seed fell on stony or rocky places. Then in verse 20, he explains it to us, and he says, But he who received seed on the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. We see that quite often. A person hears the gospel. There's an emotional response. There's an an emotional action. But when tough times come, when the faith that has been exhibited or that emotional response is tested, we find out that that seed actually fell on rocky ground and it didn't take root. And there was a belief that it even moved to action, but it wasn't legit. It got ripped off and taken away. So you have intellectual faith, rocky or stony faith, number three. We also see in the Bible saving faith. Saving faith. We find that all over the place, but you can jot down Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. The Bible says that for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. You've been saved through faith. You've saved by grace through faith. That's saving faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's the type of faith that you could say is the real deal. That's real saving faith. And that's someone that, hey, you see it in their lives, a radical change. They have been born again. And I know it's not always easy to discern in someone's life whether the faith is real or not. We look at the fruit of their life. We listen to what they say. But I'll tell you this. This is something that we've adopted, I believe, that we see it throughout the scriptures. And that is this. If you say you're saved, we're going to treat you that way. We're going to hold you accountable to a biblical standard. We're going to point you to Jesus Christ. If we see you living in sin, we're going to test you upon what the word of God says. If you say you're saved, we're going to treat you like that and hold you accountable to what you've said and how you have brought yourself. Hey, I'm a part of this church. I say I'm saved. Great, then we'll hold you accountable to that. If we see you saying that you're saved, but your life dictates or shows that perhaps you're not for real, you're not living for the, like like you have the one hour, did my duty, skipped worship, came to the Bible study, couldn't do that tonight, now could you? (laughs) And throughout the rest of the week, you are living like the devil, then we're going to treat you that way too, and we're going to preach the gospel to you and call you to repentance. So it doesn't matter either way. If your life looks like you're living for the devil and you say you're saved or you say you're saved and you want to live, we're going to treat you the way that you present yourself, always taking you to Jesus. It's not, you don't want to be thrown by, I don't know if he's saved, I'm not sure, I don't see. If he says he's saved, treat him that way. You see someone in his life that isn't consistent with what the Bible teaches, then show her that. If you see them stumbling, then do what we do with believers that stumble. We help pick them up. We move them forward. We come alongside to support. Don't be easily stumbled with, well, there must be a demonstration, an absolute proof that someone's saved. Hey, look, their heart condition is between them and the Lord. Our life is to get them pointed to Jesus, regardless of what they say or don't say. You're either going to treat them like a believer and encourage them in the Lord, or you're going to treat them like an unbeliever and preach the gospel. Either way, they win because you take them to Jesus. So saving faith is important. 
A fourth type of faith in the Bible is what's known as growing faith. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. And by the way, I think that there's a temptation as, as it relates to saving faith to try to define it so tightly that you start to argue over it. And before you know it, instead of sharing the gospel, now you're trying to figure out, well, I don't know if he's really saved and what did he do and I'm not sure he needed. You start adding all these conditions. The Bible says you're saved through faith. So if you've exhibited faith, we want to bring you to Jesus and hold you accountable to that. You want to be careful not to be arguing about stuff all the time. And sitting there almost as if you're now sitting in the seat of judgment of whether someone's saved or not. It's impossible for you to read the heart. And you can look at the fruit of their life, but depending on what kind of fruit's coming from their life, just make that observation and take them to that biblical place, that biblical standard, that place of the cross, and bring them back to Jesus. Don't be so quickly caught into the debates and the arguments. How easy it is to be caught off guard and think that it's our responsibility to prove someone's saved. To make them take a test, perhaps. Have you been saved? Oh, you uh, responded over there at Calvary Chapel? You know, altar calls are unbiblical. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, what am I supposed to do now? Uh, and you know, you, you shouldn't really stand or raise. Whoa, whoa. What, what, what am I supposed to do? Well, here is a list of 50 things. Go for it. And when you're done with 50, come back and I'll maybe see if you're still, if you are possibly saved. Hey, listen. The Bible says... Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord might be one day saved. That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says they shall be saved. God wants us to know. He wants you to know tonight that if you've walked in the doors without saving faith, you have an intellectual faith, you have a rocky faith where you've been back and forth and made these professions or confessions of faith, but your life's never really changed. I mean, you've come into knowledge. You've come into that place where you realize, you know, sin is a part of my life. Now, if you haven't come to that realization yet, then you're just not living in reality. I know that sin might be a little offensive to you tonight, but don't let it be offensive to the point where you stop listening. Because who wants to be talking about in our lives about sin? It seems a little personal, doesn't it? You might start talking to someone about sin. You have really great intentions, and they go, well, you know, that's a private matter. No, it's not. Your sin affects me. It's not private. Your sin breaks my heart. To see you rebel against the things of God, it hurts me. So it's not so private now, is it? Because I care for you and I love you. And not only is your sin not a private matter between just you and God, it breaks the heart of your family for you to live that way. When you live in sin, you become a drain on society. Well, wait a minute, I've never been in jail. It has nothing to do with jail. You could be so much of a better citizen if you live for Jesus Christ. You could go as well. You could be living as well as you are right now. You could be doing great things. You could be part of every civic organization in the city. But you could do so much more if you did it out of the love and the power and the grace and the mercy of your faith in Jesus Christ, having take away that sin problem in your life. Your sin is not a private matter between you and God. It's a matter that has been exposed and revealed to everyone around you, and it becomes a public opportunity For you to confess your sins. You know that Jesus said. He said this to people just like you and me. And by way of extension it is to you and me. He said if you confess me. Before the father. I'll confess you before man. But if you deny me. 
I'll deny you. Have you ever thought that in your life of rejecting Jesus or you may need, I'm using the word reject. Maybe you've never seen it as rejection. You're just sidestepping it or I'll get to it tomorrow or I know mom's been telling me about Jesus for a long time. And I remember I did get to that place where, and you keep putting it off. You keep putting it off. You keep putting it off. You know what you're doing? You're denying Jesus. The reward for denying Jesus, he's going to deny you. You're going to have no recourse. You're going to stand before a holy and a righteous God and have nothing to say about the sin in your life. You're not going to be able to say, I tried hard, God. I was a sinner. Like I had a hundred sins in my life. I got rid of ten of them just for you. And then my wife identified three more. Got rid of those. Didn't get rid of her. Got rid of those. Just for you, God. I even went to church because it, it was the right thing to do. And then I can hear heaven. What did you do with my son again? What do you mean? Well, the son... My son, Jesus Christ, who was clearly portrayed before you, Paul said. Clearly portrayed that in his life, his life ended in death. Why? Why would Jesus have to die? He was perfect. Death is a consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus had no sins. Therefore, he had no wages that he owed. He didn't need to die. He was perfect. Why would he? Why would Jesus die? Well, I don't believe that Jesus died. I don't believe that Jesus is real. Why not? The eyewitnesses' account of Jesus are overwhelming and far more powerful than your opinion. Not only do we have eyewitness account of Jesus and his death and his resurrection throughout the Bible, but we have independent eyewitness accounts of this man Jesus living in the time period the Bible says he lives. You could, walk the, you could walk the streets of Jerusalem and you get this sense of, man, <laughs> Jesus was here. There's some stones in Jerusalem that date back to the first century and standing on them just gives you chills. Not that the presence of Jesus is in there, is there some mystical way, but that Jesus in his love for humanity could have walked on those very stones. Jesus is no myth. You know, he's just a fairy tale. You know, man made him up. Nobody made Jesus up. He's eternal. That was a common excuse in the early church as well for the early believers in the first century. Peter, one of the eyewitness followers that hung around with Jesus for three years, his life was radically transformed because of Jesus being born again. Not, Peter says, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible the purity and the holiness of God through his son Jesus. Peter was right there. He touched Jesus. He hung out with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. And you know what else he did? He denied Jesus and he wept over his sinfulness. Peter would say to us, we haven't followed cunningly devised fables when we declare to you the majesty of God. These aren't cunningly devised. If we didn't have another witness in the scriptures or in history, this room is filled with witnesses of the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Your argument isn't something theological. Your problem with Jesus isn't something that is scientific. Your argument with Jesus isn't some intellectual barrier that you've hit. Your problem is with Jesus is that you 
are failing in this very moment. And who knows, it could be changing tonight. You are failing in this very moment to surrender your life to the Savior that bought you. That's hard to think. Oh, I'm, a, I'm not surrendering my life to, I am independent, I have freedom. And you can die in that independence and freedom and spend an eternity apart from Jesus. He died for you. You want to have that saving faith. Isn't it much easier to argue over saving faith? Isn't it much easier, well, I don't know, and I'm not sure, and you can't do that, instead of just saying, hey, look, Jesus died for your sins, believe. That's what Ephesians says, that's a saving faith. And now, number four, for those that are saved, there is that growing faith. A growing faith, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, this is verse 6, and brought us good news of your faith and love that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. The believers had saving faith, and then the comfort that came to Paul was that they continued on growing in faith. Isn't it true for you? Just this week alone, the Lord has encouraged me as a pastor to remind people, not how bad things might seem right now, but just to remind them, look how far you've come. You may not even see it. You're like, oh man, I'm just the same old such and such and so and so and and yet everyone around you is like you have come so far you need to remember what don't you remember the pit yeah but you're not there anymore no there's a little mud on my feet I know but you're not there anymore and and sometimes there's just that necessity to look back and see as a as as a person with saving faith to look back and see you know what God has also given me a growing faith you know what that means that means there's still more growth for you as confident as you might be in the Lord right now, there's still more faith and growth in your spiritual life to come. Part of the sanctification process in Jesus is to grow and mature in him. It's believing not only that God is able to save the world, but that God is able to keep you through this world. That's his power. I love it. Growing faith. This is Abounding Grace with our Bible teacher and pastor, Ed Taylor. To give this study on the Holy Spirit a second listen, all you need to do is call and request a CD copy. Reach us toll-free at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or go online to calvaryaurora.org. Again, we're at calvaryaurora.org. Ed, as we're talking about the manifestations of the Spirit right now, it would be a good time to make mention of the bookmarks we've made available to our listeners to help them remember the various components of the spiritual gifts. Yes, Larry, when I taught these studies in our home church here at Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado, I asked our graphic artist to put together, actually, I think it was his idea to put together these bookmarks. Uh, to make available so people could put them in their Bible and give them away as they're beginning to share with other people. You know, one of the advantages of studying the Bible is that once you learn something, you can teach someone else. And this is definitely a message that needs to be taught and needs to be shared. So we put these bookmarks together, and they're available for free on our website, calvaryaurora.org slash spiritualgifts calvaryaurora.org slash spiritual gifts. And we put together bookmarks of the seven primary spiritual gifts. Micah did such a great job summarizing the gifts and 
putting it together. And when I take these studies to teach, uh, like recently I taught at the Bible College, Calvary Chapel Bible College in Murrieta, California, and I taught these to the young people there, I also brought the bookmarks so that they could not only get the one that replies to them, uh, I gave one to everyone of every gift, so they could use it to teach others and to use it as tools. So be sure to get them. They're free. All you need to do is print them out calvaryaurora.org slash spiritual gifts. You'll find all seven bookmarks at calvaryaurora.org slash spiritual gifts. Do you, like so many, have questions about why God allows difficult things into our lives? Or maybe you're mourning a loss or just want a clearer picture of God's heart for those in pain. If so, The Prisoner in the Third Cell by Gene Edwards is a must-read. In it, the author explores the life and death of John the Baptist. You'll look at the seemingly unfairness of John's situation in prison and the heart of God in the midst of it all. And we'll gladly send you a copy for a donation of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. Thank you for remembering us in your prayers and giving to the Lord. Your gift, large or small, will serve to help us reach thousands with the message of Christ. Reach us toll-free at 877-30-GRACE or go online to calvaryaurora.org. We've got another study on the Holy Spirit to look forward to tomorrow on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Chapel, Aurora, Colorado.